This is a really special episode for me. Joshua was one of the pioneers in the performance visual art scene, and he was one of the first to project live visuals on stage. Since I was 18 years old, I've known about his work as one of the pioneers of the VJ art form. And when I was VJing professionally back in 2005, I got a chance to meet him and work with him at Alex Gray's Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. I wanted to go deep with him then and get into his story, but there just wasn't time. This year I reached out and asked him to do an episode, and he agreed. We had an excellent conversation about how he came up in the scene during the 60s and the influence that San Francisco during the Summer of Love had on his artistic development. He tells me about the cultural atmosphere that allowed his work to flourish and what it was like to make a name for himself during that time. It's a really cool recounting of the bi-coastal counterculture during another period of national upheaval, and it's kind of hilarious how similar things were back then. It struck me how some of the paths he blazed to make a living creating new media art are some of the same paths I see myself and my peers walking. It was cool to reflect on the generational differences and similarities between us and to get his perspective on the state of new media arts today. So check it out. I think you'll dig our conversation and maybe it'll help you put your own work and your own career path into a new perspective. So I'm really stoked that, uh, that we're getting to connect. First of all, uh, I am, as long as I've been creating art, I've been creating visual live performance art and the Joshua white, uh, Joshua light show is, is kind of etched into my mind as being, um, you know the seed of of VJing. Yeah, it's a uh, huge. I, I accept that the compliment they was referred to some as the the father of VJ culture. Yeah, well, I, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm the grandfather of VJ culture, but I'm happy to be referenced in that in that world. Well, it's it's really new media art, you know, in in the in terms of using technology to to create visual art. Uh, I think that was definitely that is like a seed event in in the history of new media art is uh is your work with uh with overhead projectors um, well we, but, it was there was nothing there was no visuals we 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 did it because there was nothing to look at and the music exploded it sounded amazing but the audience you know black curtains follow spots nothing so yeah, what about what about lights? Like I, I know that like Led Zeppelin and and uh, you know I guess that was during the seventies and you were really starting. You started in the sixties, um, but big lights, you know, like the big the paradigm of like big stage lighting mm-hmm. that was really I guess that came to fore in like the seventies and eighties. Yeah. So back when you started, there was nothing. Nothing that I saw. Um, in fact, there, because remember there were no arena shows. Mm-hmm. Or if it was an arena show, they just the, they they would squeeze um, a band in, and we're talking about you know literally the the doors at this point. There was not there you know the Beatles. They would squeeze yeah. them in between sporting events or rodeos, um, ice shows, whatever was done in these arenas. But they certainly was no rock there, and there was no sound systems. Yeah, and there was no there was no lighting. They were all done. Um, everything that was in these places was all done with follow spots and with, you know, colored floodlights. Well, yeah. I was going to say, what about, uh, what about like park hands, park hands and gels? You know, yeah, that was like, that's park like hands and the gels came along later and, and they came along within early because there were people, um, like Chip Monk, the famous Chip Monk who, who figured out how to, how important backlighting was and he could call follow spots and, 
change the colors or the backlights. But just remember that when I was doing this, in the, it, that it's it's almost as if it went from literally nothing like this. Right. And the reason that everything got better right away quickly and just keeps getting better isn't necessarily used better, but it gets better was because the, the bands were playing in arenas and they had to be big. Right. So you had right the first bands all they they all you had these big hair bands, you know, that's where Kiss and because they looked bigger sure. than they really and, were. And that's the era that uh that you know when I think of of early stage lighting, you know, I came up in uh like the early 2000s and you know everybody I toured with they were they would, would always talk about like the era of big stage show production and they were referring to like the 80s, you know, like the the big hair metal bands when there was just massive amounts of money spent on uh, on production, yeah. and that was kind of like the golden era. But uh, you came up in really the '60s in yeah, New York I, City I, I, after Woodstock. I I realized because I wasn't I, I was sort of I came from a more theatrical show business background, and I'd been college. Did you go to Did you go to Woodstock? Uh, yeah, we were the Joshua Light Show was at Woodstock, oh, right. and it was there that I realized that even though we were trying to project on a screen that was twice as wide, 80 feet wide, it meant nothing. It meant nothing to those people. The very to, same, to which people? I say it again? To which people? To the audience. I mean, they, they, they were looking at this postage stamp and it made no difference right. what we did. It, had, it was all about being there. Um, one of the things that really is important about Woodstock uh, and is to be appreciated is that this, that everything failed there. They couldn't hang my screen after the first night. You know, the lights were barely hung and it was some follow spots mostly, but the sound always worked. Right. And that I feel like the, that's the paradigm. That is like the current paradigm of VJing. Yeah. You know, I VJed for years and uh, I don't know any VJs who don't go through like a jaded period where they're like, ah, oh, fuck it. No one cares. You know, I could do whatever. I could do anything, and no right. one cares. Yeah, no, we we just the opposite with us. We we completely had the audience. What what we did in New York in 1968 when the film were open, and we'd been doing before that in other theaters. It wasn't like this was our big break, but it was all about a theater. The audience came in, had tickets, reserved seats, and they sat down, and right. they staring straight ahead. It wasn't a ballroom. It wasn't festival seating, which basically means no seats. It wasn't an arena. It was not, it, you know, there was very few places that were really big. You know, uh, Red Rocks was big. You know, uh, the the Hollywood Bowl was big. But mostly it was it was just uh, these these ballrooms that had been converted. But the Fillmore East was a theater, a 3,000-seat theater. So would you call we that more a of a theatrical setting? We had a responsibility. We, we had to be very aware that the audience was staring at the screen all the time. So we started when the house opened and we kept doing it until the house closed. Now, when I say doing right. it, I meant that we always had some information. There was something going on that, that either welcomed the audience or gave them information or filled in these, these dead spots when the equipment had to be fixed. It's just a side note, but, but the, a lot of these English bands, all of which were, were new, I mean, relatively new, would would come to America to tour, and the first stop would be the Fillmore East. So it was very possible that the Hammond B three organ wouldn't quite work on sixty cycles because it was designed for fifty cycles, and we had a staff that could figure that out. But sometimes they had to do it literally while the audience waited. So, so it was our responsibility. Did you start? Did you start? Did you start at Fillmore East? No, I started um, in, in six. I had. 
I had started, I did my first light show in, in December of 1967 uh, in a theater in Long Island that was trying to do a, what they called a celebration of sound. And, uh, and we were hired to provide a, a, a visual behind the bands. And Frank Zapp and the Mother's Convention were the first band. That was the, uh, that was the Summer of Love. Uh, it was the Summer of Love, exactly. Yeah, and, I actually, I wanted to ask you more about that. I'll ask you later, but... Um... That must have been an insane time. And I'm, I'm really curious about how like that moment in culture was being experienced in New York, because all we ever hear is like San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. But there's, you know, that revolution was sweeping across the entire country. Right. Um, yeah, it's crazy. You have, you have to put away everything that we know for the last 20 years in terms of communicating even more, uh, because we're talking about half a century ago. And the... I'll just give you the best example I can. We were at Woodstock. The Joshua Light Show was hired to perform. We did it for one night, and then the screen blew down in a storm, and we just went home. It was an overhead projector screen. Well, like it, was a fast, a rear, fast it was a rear projection screen. The light show was actually made up of lots of elements, one of which was the famous liquids on the overheads. But the truth is we had mirrors. We had films. We had It, we, it was a big deal. A lot and of, you had to be behind that screen then. That was yeah, that was our style. It did, we didn't have to be, but that was the style that worked best because it got us not at Woodstock, obviously, but in, at the Fillmore, we were on we were on the back wall, literally nailed up on the back wall, and there was room underneath for them to move the vans around. So we Well I was we, gonna say, how else would you have done it? Because we would have had, we like, would have done what had been done before. We would have taken over the front of the balcony, and that was not a good idea because that was money. That was, you know, it was always given that we would rear project. Right. All I'm, I guess, all I'm saying is that at that time you were using a rear projector, like like an overhead projector, meaning you had to be physically located at that projector to be oh, yeah, manipulating no, it was all, it was media. All manual. It, it was all manual. We, we, the Joshua Light Show really didn't start to use. Big big video components until uh, you know five six years ago, and that was only because the prices finally began to come down. Yeah, and we could yeah. mix analog with real uh, with video, and, and the video quality got really good. So we began to do some elements of the show in in miniature instead of a big overhead. We would use a small plate and put a good camera over it, and and we okay. would put that on the screen and mix it with with other things that were not as sophisticated. Because at a certain point, you were able to use cameras aimed down to to remote to to abstract yourself from that overhead yeah. projector yeah. hardware. Well, so uh, you yeah, could just... from everything. But the thing is, we didn't. It was all blended in. We we never just rolled stuff. We never, unless unless there was money to be made, in which case we did what every V did. We put it all in, into a what was it a V four, and one person would just sit there and mix it. You know, I mean, it was. But the thing that made it good was that. They, they weren't mixing crap. They were mixing really beautiful stuff that we had made. Sure. And uh, you so know, on a side note, did you uh, did you know that V four mixers are actually experiencing a, a resurgence? I just found yeah. this out, and, well, and they're I, very I, valuable not, right now because no one makes them. I'm not, I'm not Ad, surprised. I'm not surprised. Also, they, you can get them this big now. But some, <laughs> um, but I've noticed that a lot. A lot of the young associates that work with our show purposely will make a movie, which is wonderful in itself. And they'll shoot it on a medium called SVHS. And SVHS was simply VHS. You, you probably remember VHS. I do. And I do SVHS remember SVHS. The tinier 20 minute, 20 minute VHS that you put into the camera, which allowed the camera to be smaller. And yeah. then um, 
to when you wanted to play it back in a regular VHS, you put it into a thing that made it the same size. That's funny. I thought the SVHS had something to do with the, the quality of the tape. Maybe, oh, maybe I missed it. Uh, I think I'm thinking of like S-video. S yes. No, this was yeah, yeah. But they, it was a purposeful choice. And when I was doing some of my earlier art installations, um, there were none of the programs that are very common now that make your stuff look old were there. So if you sure, wanted well, I mean, you didn't need it. You were, you, it, was, it was actually... We had to, if, if we wanted something to look like an old 8mm film, we would shoot it on 8mm. I mean, that sure. was part of, of what we what we did. And as I said, a lot of people now purposely work in 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 arcane techniques, and that's fine with me. That's well, it's a style. It's a style that's coming painting back. Painting in oils is an arcane technique by today's standards. It's it's an aesthetic, and I, I think that you know, like everything, it goes in waves. There was a uh, there was like an analog um, cassette. You know, cassettes came back. They're being used. Uh, you know, as like an artistic, uh, almost like a filter mm -hmm. for musicians. You know, so you like release your music on a, on on a cassette, it's and that was like got, that was going around in Oakland. Vinyl for a while. People that, that I work with make vinyl records. I mean, the purpose sure. is very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a filter. It's a sound. You know, it's like the sound of the technology that you're using to play back your medium or play, play back your art form. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I, I'm of mixed opinions with that. I think it's great. On, on on one level because i love hacking stuff and using complicated a complicated video projector mixed with some guy waving a mirror around i think that's really cool uh so describe the like i'm curious about like how you how you figured out your technique you know back in the day when you first started i was reading a reading a thing and said you started in 65 actually you were hanging out with a guy named bob goldstein mm-hmm who uh, who did a weekly series down in in uh, in Greenwich Greenwich Village? Yeah, and uh, but in those days it was like it was practically in the river. It was like west 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 west, and he had a loft, which by even today's standards wasn't very big, right? But he had a mirrored ball, and he had some Christmas lights that were that were hooked up so you could flash from one to another, and he had some color wheels, and he had a collection of what were called scopy tones. Do you know what scopy tones are? No, what's that? Okay, it just—it's they were music videos played in a jukebox that was called a Scopitone. You it, you only had a, a choice of like sixteen choices. You put your you put your twenty five cents in, and it would it would literally put up a film that was very brief, and the films were all made for Scopitones. Oh, that's interesting. It's yes. almost like the uh, at like a restaurant. You remember like the like, old like, like, like old old restaurants, videos, like music videos, and and you could choose yeah. and. And he just had a collection of them, which we had to show his film, but we could mix it in with what we were doing. He had these three large screens, but the thing is, it was good and it was fun. And I was 22, 23. So for me, it was great because I got to move light around, which is what I wanted to do. And I could Where'd really that come from, though? You're just like hanging out at his loft eating some mushrooms you're like whoa this, this beer ball is crazy no there were, <laughs> people want to see of, this they, they, the drugs of choice then not by me but everybody just took a lot of speed it was a lot very andy warhol amphetamine speed time now do you think that was a new york specific thing i can only speak for new york i know that um that you know that everybody of course had smoked dope and had dope but there was none of the sophisticated Drugs. I didn't see any of those. But LSD was a thing in San Francisco alone. LSD was no, not. We, in. Had, we definitely had it in New York. It just wasn't something that 
that that you did. You didn't, especially before the Fillmore open and before we were in the proximity of the Grateful Dead. It was just, it was not, a, you had to pursue right. the, those drugs. You had to chase after them to find yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's like, speed is such a nasty drug, man. I can't imagine a nightlife scene subsisting on that that alone because it's just it i mean that they blame that for the collapse of uh you know the hate ashbury scene they say that the influx of speed and the mixing of speed and and psychedelics really created this toxic environment which which tanked that which was partly responsible for for the crashing of that that movement yeah hey man speed speed kills yeah, that's interesting. So that was uh, that was what was ha- what was happening in terms that was of what was happening in the Andy Warhol, Bob Goldstein world. The Fillmore was uh, different in that it was really about the music and about the bands, and that was very different than what preceded it. Now, how how was your how was like the Fillmore and that scene back at that time? How how did that interact with uh, like the Andy Warhol and the more um, pop culture artists? I guess it didn't. It was inter- There was no interaction. I mean, I was certainly aware of the other world. Um, I had um, you know been to the factory. I knew these people, but again, they were just crazy. What's and what's the factory? The factory was Andy Warhol's notorious studio. We had several of them. Is and that where he had like all those people helping it, it him was, make his art? It was, like, it was a scene. And yeah. so he would go there and Andy, Andy Warhol was, was very Sphinx-like. So he, he people just really. <laughs> I like that description. <laughs> yeah, they, they wanted, well, as Truman Capote said, it was a Sphinx without a secret. But he, right. he had a way of, of manipulating needy people, telling them they were superstars. And they made all this stuff, which was, was highly regarded in the art world and yeah. in the film world. But it was, didn't mean dipshit in, in, in the rock and roll world. And our world just exploded. So right. he, was, he really that whole world was completely somewhere else. He, Andy Warhol was represented by the the exploding plastic inevitable, you know, which was a band of no particular <laughs> skills or talent. There was some interesting people involved, but they were they they were just you know just standing there screaming, and he 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 he'd fancy some German beautiful woman and say, "This is Nico. She's going to be lead singer." And next thing we know. Or they knew. I just couldn't stand that scene. I just I, I knew enough about it to know that I had something else that I wanted to do. It's Sounds ironic. Like a cult. It's ironic, and I'll just give you this point. In, in 1968, the film were open, and after we'd been there for about six months, word got around the city, so people were coming to see everything, including the light show, which was a which got the credit for half the experience because Janice may have been great, but there was also something to look at. And it was this light show. So we got a lot of good press. They were making this movie, Midnight Cowboy, um, a film with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. And in the middle of the film, the two characters they play go to a a Bob Goldstein kind of party. And they wanted Andy Warhol to do it. They couldn't find him. They couldn't find people to talk to. (laughs) Nobody returned their calls. So they came to me and I made them a party. I recreated it literally as scenically that we did the light show i showed them how to how to do my parts of it the visual parts and they hired warhol people to be in it but the the look and the feel and everything was all designed by me 1968 huh. and was this what this wasn't the joshua light show that this was uh your tv thing that you did afterwards yeah, yeah? joshua light show and, and it and i know it's important aside from the fact that it's 10 minutes into the movie and you could just type in 
party Midnight Cowboy and you'll see. And the work is subtle because it's not in your face. It doesn't look like a light show. It just looks like a happening scene. It looks like what people imagine it should look like. And we used a lot of tricks. And remember, I, I've been, I spent two years at USC film school. So films were easy for me to understand. I was not intimidated by, by the scene or by the people. And, and John Schlesinger, the director, was great to work with. And Dustin Hoffman was great to work with. And it took yeah. 10 days to shoot a 10-minute scene. So before that, though, I, I want to go back to this. Like, where did the concept come from? You're hanging out, got all these Christmas lights, got some disco balls. Like, how were people doing things with oil and light yeah, in San that. Francisco, in 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 uh, in in London, definitely. Where especially places where there was either smaller cities like San Francisco. People forget San Francisco was is was and is a very small city compared to New York, and right. London was still in in what you call the post war era. So there was no money, and everybody just did shit all the time. New York sure. was different. New York was theater. New York was New York. Yeah, I was gonna say it's New York has always had a, a much more theatrical feel, and, and 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 all and myself, I I went to Carnegie Mellon Drama School for two years before I went to USC Film School, and all my friends were all people that that it, it wasn't so much that they were theater nuts as much as they understood the discipline. So when Bill Graham decided he wanted to open a theater in New York and open it three weeks after you know he announced it. The people I work with, myself and, and many others, all understood. How, how do you get tickets printed? How do you get the right? How do you train ushers? How do you, you know, deal with the fire laws? How do you deal with the police? I mean, these were all things that we were ultimately good at, which gave Bill Graham, who was a real fighter, great confidence because nobody said, hey, man, why? You know, they just said, yes, sir. And they did it. Now, were you guys friends? Did, is yeah, that how you ended yes. up I in this but, but I respected him. And more important is, is he respected um, me and the light show because if you look at the history, we're on the marquee. It says Janice. It says it doesn't even say Janice because like they were a commune, so it was Big Brother. It didn't mention Janice at all. But Joshua Light shows up there. It's on the posters. We we uh -huh. came to the Fillmore fully formed. We'd already, we'd already done the light show. Yeah, where did that? Where was that formed though? Sure. Like, what was the crucible? Was it okay, that? Well, dude? it was several things. One was it, a year earlier a place open in New York called the Electric Circus. And the yeah. original Electric Circus was a major step forward in the visual scene because unlike um, concerts in, you know, Carnegie Hall or in college auditoriums, this place was an environment. You stepped inside and they did all of these really clever and ultimately, by today's standards, cheap things. You know, they... Was it, it like a another, club? It was another ballroom. We had a lot of ballrooms in New York. Standard. Was it kind of like a like a club or something? Or it was a, it, it had been uh, it had been um, a many many other things. You know, uh, uh, it was it, it, in the in the late '60s. The Lower East Side was Ukrainian and Polish, so it had been a Polish dance hall. Okay, I, yeah. I'm sure when it was built, it was it was a Yiddish something because our all the theaters down there, of which the Fillmore was one, were all built by, by the Yiddish theater in between the wars. So, um, so there was a, a, this was the space, but instead of it being the traditional ballroom with a balcony and a bandstand for the orchestra, they broke the space up and they hung stretch nylon and you, you couldn't tell which way was up. And then they did this thing that was important to me is they brought a really good light, light show artist who, who did a lot of good liquid work named Anthony Martin. And he came from San Francisco to New York. And I, Interesting. So it's seated back. 
he, he went, he had, they'd been doing it out there for years, but it, you know, for two cents or for, you know, uh, uh, or, or for car fare. I mean, there was, sure, it just never took hold. so he came to New York and he put together something that was really nice. And, and you stepped in. And the other thing about the circus was it didn't really have like a VIP area. So you could go up to what was the old balcony and you could look down on it, which is very important because a lot of these places made the balcony into a VIP area. So you were always in the middle of it. You couldn't get an overview. Yeah. And also, I was fortunate in that, that the person who opened it, a guy named Jerry Brandt, who just died, married an old friend of mine from camp. So I could come and go and get in and out. And that was where I really saw the possibilities. Um, and the circus was trying to be too many things. They were trying to be, uh, you know, uh, have, have acrobats and clowns and, and bands. And they, they were doing everything. The walls were covered with astroturf, a lot of ultraviolet <laughs> paint. It was every trope, every cliche. Right. But it, you know, they did book good bands and it, the place was happening for a while. And, um, and so that was where I first saw it. And by June, I, it opened like in April, May. And I said, I got to go out to San Francisco to look, check this out. Yeah. I went to San Francisco and friends of mine got me into the Fillmore. And I saw was Bill Graham standing at the top of the stairs collecting money. And I saw the, the basket of free apples. And I went up into the ballroom and I saw what the light show looked like. And I realized that the light show was there really to provide a whole environment. There was nothing. It was just a shabby old ballroom. So the light show just looked like it went everywhere. So they right. might have been doing really interesting stuff behind the band. But when you looked off on the sides, it was some old James Bond film being shown upside down. You know, I mean, they, they were desperate for material because you were not sitting down. You were surrounded. And yeah, it's like an immersive, an immersive experience. An immersive experience. And there was also a kind of a, a certain kind of hip fascism that I hated. We didn't really have it in New York, but out there. Would you call it hip, hip fascism? fascism. You, you sort of had to. Go I know out. exactly what you're talking about. That's you hilarious. No, I do. You I do. think that still so exists. I just remember going in there and, and being like this. <laughs> yeah, all the time because because you didn't want to upset the vibe you didn't want to you know be heavy <laughs> right but but i took away the the sense of experience which was important because that was connected to what bob colson had been doing and i also took away the sense of how high up the scale visuals were sure you went and then and there was a third element at the Fillmore west or the Fillmore Auditorium or the Winterland Ballroom was that yeah. you the band, the light show, but the people were all interacting together. And they, there was always hippie girls doing this and people painting their bodies. And the circus had some of that, but the Fillmore was a theater. So I, um, what happened after, that was June of 67, but I had a company that I ran with other friends. We... Um, we did disco. What was it called? It was what, called what was that, that, that company called? This. It was, we were looking for one of these, you know, cool corporate names. And we called, we, we said, we, we create sense. We create effects. We create environments. Let's call the company Sense Effects. Yeah, I was reading about sense that. Effect, sense Effects. Which is just the worst idea because anyone who reads the things, it says sex offense. I, we were, I read it quickly and I was like, what mm -hmm. does that say? <laughs> and we were, we were selling ourselves with a logo and we were convincing people. that, And this is the important thing because it was very much like influencers today. We were able to convince a limited number of people, especially corporations, that we were a turnkey solution to being hip. 
that if you gave yeah. them a certain so amount of money, got- and it was not very much money, we'd come, we'd bring the flower girl, the flower children, you know, we, we'd have a, whatever cliche you could think of, we, we could get. It was easy. We could get a palm reader. We could get, Interesting. We could always get someone to take off their clothes. It was easy. It was New York. It was theater. You know, right. So I was reading about that online. You, you guys really kind of, you were doing art for, for, for corporate consumption. I mean, among other things like that was, it's interesting to me because a lot of artists today, a lot of new media artists, that is the, uh, that's the avenue. That's like the only avenue that uh, is viable is make, you know, expressing your art for a corporate audience because they're the ones who will pay for it. And uh, it was interesting to, to read that that's kind of in a way, how you got started as well. So I was in 66, right? Well, I, that was how I got started in the sense that, that we could make money by, by in, in those days, the height of sophistication, you ready for this was do a fashion show. And there would be, you'd, people would be sitting in a room in chairs and it looked like a fashion show with a runway. And you would, and you would see slides on either side of the stage showing the model in the clothing. And then, in the center, there was a screen that was really just strips of cloth, and they and the model would come bursting out wearing the same outfit. <laughs> and we were, we got we got paid to bring that off, and it was great. They nobody even noticed that the woman in the photographs was not the same as the one on the stage. It didn't make any difference as long as the hair color was right and the clothing was right. And also, right. I mean, just look at me now. I I don't look like, and I never never look like I was part of a scene. I just, I cleaned up. I just looked, I could put on a tie and, 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 and that was one thing, but we also had a whole other life, which where we built discotheques, meaning we did the lighting for discotheques. Now this is interesting because we're not talking about discos. We're talking about discotheques. What's the difference? Tell tell me what the difference is. In, um, in the sixties when everything kind of exploded, the sixties were like the fifties until 1964 when the Beatles came to be on the Insulting Show. And there was like an explosion, but it was a slow motion explosion. So by 65, 66, people were looking for some kind of trippy experience. And we were able, just by having the knowledge and the technology to make discotheques look nice. We were able to use the right kind of equipment. We didn't get too theoretical. Our stuff lasted. And we did some very successful ones the world, um, it was very different. It was, it, it, there was a series of things that came along in the 60s that sort of captivated the public. Uh, belly dancing, topless dancing was very big, especially in San Francisco. And then it became um, multimedia, and that's what we could do, multimedia. And then it became exploding this and exploding that. But we were always able to build stuff that really lasted because we had – we had a knowledge of the technology and we were not subservient to the scene. So, so do you think that that pushed both ways? Do you think that the te- if the, if the seed for the Joshua light show came from San Francisco and you kind of took that and you ran with it and you created something that was uh, kind of like the natural evolution of that seed concept, mm-hmm. do you think it pushed back the other way? Do you think that like I'm not sure technology you mean, but, 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 but was pushed back the other way? What do you mean? I mean, do you think that technology use from New York and the techniques that you were developing in New York pushed back to the to the West Coast? Um, I, I probably. I don't. You know, it it was it wasn't rocket science. Um, and also, um, as again, as I said, it, there was only New York, 
and then people would open rival versions of the electric circus in Chicago and Boston and stuff like that. Well, that's what and, I mean. Like the, the culture pushes back both ways. You know, it's like artists. No, no, take... no. It's, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Everybody, if something happens. Wow. And it yeah, I mean, you can call it imitation. You could also call it inspiration. And I think that like there, that's how like these cultural waves kind of wash back and forth is you have like an artist who's iterating on something he was inspired by or she was inspired by. And then that inspiration causes some slight variation. It's evolution. Do you know what I mean? And and what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is like the evolution of the Joshua Light Show you know, the, the inspiration for that came from things that were like seeds in San Francisco. And then you took it and you, you developed it into uh, a mature art form, let's say. Um, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a missing link here, which I think I should just fill you in on, which will make it a little easier to understand. Because I didn't have this great wave of genius. I just was very good at doing what had to be done using what I had to offer, which was taste and timing and judgment. So yeah. in the middle of the summer, middle of the summer of love, a theater, a traditional new theater in Toronto booked Bill Graham, San Francisco's Bill Graham to do a summer of love week in this theater. And it was a traditional theater, beautiful, big new theater. And, and Bill came to Toronto and brought the Jefferson airplane and the Grateful Dead. And they, the light show from San Francisco wanted to close off the balcony. And they hired my company to figure out what to do. And my company, which did all this disco lighting and industrial, we figured out you could rear project the light show. We figured out how you could make it look like a ballroom without having to spend a lot of money, without having union problems. And in the end, I have even ended up calling the lights, which was just telling the follow spots what to do. Sure. Well, I mean, you need a visual director. Well, the person Every who was supposed to do it director. was a friend of mine. He had been busted on the border and couldn't get in to Toronto. So I said, fine, I'll sit in the back of the house with a headset. Well, I watched the airplane of the dead, which really went right to, into me. And it's very important that something come inside you. And I watched the San Francisco light show headlights, Jerry Abrams and Glenn McKay's head, headlights. I watched them work on from behind on a screen that was 20 by 30 feet that I had installed. And I was thrilled to be there. And I had great admiration for Jerry and Glenn and everything. And I was shocked to, when I actually met them and talked to them, the two of them hated each other. And they were fighting all the time and literally broke up in Toronto. I also discovered for the first time that musicians, especially ones from the Bay Area, are not the most generous people. We're not the most generous people in the world, whatever you may read. They were kind of chauvinists. Interesting. You know, I lived in New York, crappy old New York. They lived in Marin. It was heaven. Anyway, we did the gig. It worked out great. We made friends with Bill Graham. He saw how efficient we could be at, if he wanted balloons, he had balloons. It was it was easy for us. Right. And um, Kind of like their go-to production company in well, terms of vision. In essence, yes. And I could have tried to have turned that into a big business, but that's not what I really wanted to do. That's That requires it's it's much too complicated because it, it, you are correct in that I did approach it artistically. So what oh, happened was you were funding your art that, and uh, that Glenn McKay, uh, the half of the team who was the first hippie that I ever met with a ponytail. And it was very big sort of guy from Kansas city. He came back to New York with us 
Hippie from Kansas. Whoa. Well, he from Kansas, <laughs> yeah. But, but he came back to New York with us. You know, he was proud of me. He'd always say, I'm just from Kansas. But he always had these beautiful girlfriends and beautiful jewelry. I mean, the guy was amazing. And we became friends. And we made a deal with him that fall that um, we would build him a new light show because we could do that. And I got to tell you, attaching a color wheel to a motor, if you don't know how to do it, is really hard. And if you sure. do know how to do it, it's really easy. So we made a deal where we built his new show for him. It only cost a few thousand dollars. He taught us liquids. And I have pictures of Glenn teaching me how to mix liquids. This is and the hippie he, from Kansas. Yeah. Well, I, I don't mean to, to dwell on the Kansas part. I mean, he was, he was the perfect example of someone who found themselves in San Francisco in the 60s on the Hay sure. Ashbury. I mean, yeah, he yeah, was, yeah. But he was big and he was very jolly and fun. And he knew all the best dope and he knew all the best people. And he was very much of that scene. I mean, he was like a poster guy. He literally is on a poster. There's a poster from a classic poster that he's right on that says, Better Living Through Chemistry. And he's standing <laughs> on a street on the hill in San Francisco. The point was, I learned, we learned the basic techniques and I was working with very good guys and we all learned it. And literally by October, we said, we've got to, we have to do a light show. And then we finally got a gig at a theater in, in, in Long Island. And we did the show. And it was great from the first note. And that became all we wanted to do. And now it was just a question of finding work. And we did. We found, we heard that Crawdaddy Magazine was going to produce rock concerts in a crummier theater across the street from what is now, what was the Fillmore. And, and the Anderson Theater, and it was all sort of semi-gangsters and everything, but we didn't care. We just did it all. And, you know, man, and, it's, it's and, funny how, like, I feel like that story of people discovering an art, falling in love, and figuring out a way to make a living doing what they love to do. Yeah, right? I, that is I, like, the living part was, was less of an issue as much as being a child of the 50s, getting to do something that really gave you great internal satisfaction. We didn't have to, we didn't wait on tables. None of us... Sure, but I feel like that's a common story throughout so many new media artists that I've uh, that I've talked to, where it's like we see, you know, we see something. For me, it was I, I experienced VJing, you know, at, at some rave, and I was just like, oh my god, this is it's like video dancing to the to the music. I will do this one day, you know. And then you figure it out, you iterate, you like push that art form forward. It's just uh, yeah, it's I interesting. Think, I it's think the, uh, I'm sorry that you had to go through that because I think the the rave culture was very self-defeating and you were having feelings similar to what I had in the discotheques in that, in that whatever I did was fine, but it was still a bunch of people. <laughs> right. They're all fruging, you know, and they all wanted more strobes and stuff. And I didn't hang around. I didn't have to hang around and be in the scene. Yeah. I've never been in a scene. I've, I've, scenes have gone on around me, but I've never been in the scene. Uh, scenes are annoying, man. Scene, scenes are so annoying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were, I'm sure they were annoying then, and they're annoying now. And I, I left the Fillmore after Woodstock because I could see what was happening. And just to give you a little closure on this, the next thing I did was large screen video projections in arenas, which okay. I can tell you in 1970 was really hard to do. I was going to say, what was the technology that you were technology using? We were then? using a. a, a a very limited form of projector that was as big as a refrigerator. You had to be a physicist to run it. The union issues were extraordinary. I had to run yeah. big trucks, but they would pay us and I would do it and we'd make a little bit of money. But more important is it trained me how to do rock and roll on television. Right. So when rock and roll got on television late, as always, uh, I had the skill set. 
That's so funny. Intercom That's... system because nobody would would build an intercom system that you could hear high noise in. It was they were, and and I so I had I had to build my own. Well, that that must have been like the origin. So I went through school uh, for show production, yeah. and I uh, I went like I, my my focus was visuals video on the screen, mm-hmm. right? Because I was trying to figure out how to take VJing and turn it into uh, like a like a career, a viable career, mm-hmm. and the only paradigm that they knew was like iMag. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm sure that that same technology is technology that you were working with and pushing back then and, and working to develop back then that I kind of caught the tail end of. Do you know what I mean? I saw like, I saw a video on the stage right before projection mapping came in and, and like big stage visuals right. happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an interesting transition to see, but it, it's like, yeah, it's funny how it that started with you know back in the seventies with like iMag and that same technology on the stage. Well, yeah, know, except doing... that I could call it Joshua Television. I could take all the goodwill and you know and the feelings that I had developed over two years at the Fillmore, uh-huh. and, um, and so it, it instead of it being you know video image magnification by sense effects, it was Joshua sure. Television. Which what did you, you project? Didn't make me rich or anything, but it got us work, and I was able to figure out a lot of the technical problems that were just the nature of the of the technology. Then it was all there's only three television networks. You know, the the technology was was funky, but it worked. What, what were, you, were you using like cameras and, and video switchers, or sure. yeah, yeah, and, Man, I love that. and everything. I mean, I did it. It looks exactly like a television show. Except we so, were projecting it on screens. Was it? Um, were you doing like uh, like the 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 classic oil art up on the screens, or was no. this like analog no, analog I mean, video? I, I went into it. It's a good question. I went into it feedback and... of doing electronic light shows, which meant I would mix the 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 performers live on stage with abstractions, and I would control it all. Uh, I would you ever play with video video feedback? Uh, yeah, I would do whatever I could. However, and this is important. However, the technology was not there. So you and I, I won't go into it too deeply, but in those days, television cameras had to be all synchronized with each other, yeah. and they were yeah, all yeah. run together. And you couldn't just introduce some other tape machine. And there weren't any. There was this was as three quarter inch was just being developed. Three quarter inch, you know, um, before DHS, before Beta. So I couldn't put anything else in it. I tried. I came up with objects and devices and light boxes. But the bottom line was we it was just it was it was like riding, I guess it was like being in a rodeo and riding, you know, horses. You held sure. on for dear life and I held on for dear life. Um, yeah, I mean that's ex- that's that's cool though. You're like exploring cool. the technology. And, and remember, I'm I wasn't I, I was at Woodstock, so what can they do to me? You know, um, I, I had the technology. I knew how, how to order something. TV was very nice because e- even though it was primitive, you, you made one call and a truck that cost a million dollars pulled up and they all the cameras were on, all the cables were on it. Um, so it was, it was much easier to do. We could do it in a day, which was a big factor. And uh, again, the screens weren't very bright, but in those days, neither was the lighting. And one of the secrets of, of making a good light show anytime, including today, 50 years later, is that you just don't want anything to be brighter than you. <laughs> you don't want moving lights. You don't want smoke. 
you know. Well, I mean, it's it's now it's it's a conversation, and, and video is part of the mix. But there's a lot of the visual landscape on a stage has changed uh, so dramatically. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. Well, I've had experiences no longer... in the in the present. I mean, I, I the Metallica did a giant concert with full tilt with everything with a rig and everything, and I worked on it. And they wanted Joshua Light Show stuff, which I made for them, but. <clears throat> just watching the scale at which they were working this the video guy had 16 cameras plus playback he had things flying through the air you know there was the, they they spent a week just pre-visualizing in nashville the, the lighting cues i mean it was sure. amazing i i was not warmed by it particularly but again they paid me money so I well, it's, it's become industrial well it's here's the thing i think it canceled everything cancels itself out in the bottom, in the in the end, uh, Metallica could have stood on a milk crate and played in the audience. Would have just loved it. They would have loved it, um, right. and that's important. They didn't need to do what they did, but they they felt they had to give the audience something, so they did. Well, in the ever evolving atmosphere and and the, like the ecosystem of of live production, it's a uh, it's a never ending game of one upmanship. And I, I agree with you. I think that at a certain point, it it detracts. I mean. It's all about the balance, Josh. You know what I mean? It's like you look at a stage and it's so easy to throw off the balance, like the visual balance, and have it look garish in some way. And and as long as the bottom line is that the person <clears throat> that you've come to see is maybe six feet tall, if they're lucky, um, that it, 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 no matter how big you make it, it still comes down to that one or two or three or four people. Right. Unfortunately, you, can't, you just can't make it bigger. You can put the drum set on tracks and have it go up in the air, turn upside down, and ride around the room. But it doesn't make the drum solo any better. It's right. a spectacle at that point. And fortunately, yeah. I don't have to work in that world. I I saw the, the much earlier versions of it. They were fun to watch. But I moved on. I became a television director. It was great work. It was union work. So, so when did that transition happen? It happened. Um, it, I was working um, at ABC had this late night slot that they wanted to fill uh, every night at 1130. They didn't have a talk show. And they decided that once every other week, they would do a series called In Concert. And the whole idea of In Concert was you went someplace. Initially, they wanted to go to college campuses. I don't know why. I guess it left over from shows they did in the 50s. I don't know. But they thought the future of music is on the college campus, which was so not true. But I could, I could, as an associate producer, I could go and I could sit at a table and I could talk to the head of uh, the union for ABC's engineers, who was a tough Irish guy who, you know, fought with Jimmy Hoffa, you know, and everything, his veins were pulsing out of his neck and everything. And he'd be on my left. On my right would be the Grateful Dead sound man. Okay. August Owsley III, he was also their LSD provider. That's a great. Well, I'm standing there going, well, you see, Mister Mister Harahan, what Mister Owsley is saying, and I knew that eventually it was going to be fine because the one thing the band does is show up and plays. Right. And they do that, and that's very. I important. mean, ideally, ideally that happens. Well, it, it happened. It was happening in those days. They show up and play, and then, you know, then and the other thing that's really important that I I just like to mention is is that during the time I was at the Fillmore, really towards the end, the drugs changed seriously. And we haven't we talked about drugs, but not cocaine. Cocaine really fucked everything up really good. Did it? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because like I, I feel like speed is a much more dramatic 
drug, but cocaine is a much more like pervasive drug. Do you know what I mean? And, and you've definitely, I've seen that, I've seen that drug change uh, social scenes, you know. Then you, then you know, you know, that, that, you know, when, when, when uh, it, it's, it's not unlike, you know, the, what's going on in our times now, you know, if when somebody, then you could, you could have an argument or say, uh, you know, I don't, I don't agree with you, man, but you know, you you look cool, you seem cool, you know, and then that turned into, you know, I can have you killed and they weren't going to have you killed. But they, they felt they could say things like that. Well, yeah. I'm seeing a little too much of that lately. Yeah. I mean, cocaine's an ego drug. You know, it's, it's, it's an ego drug and it, yeah, I mean the seventies, I, I wasn't around, but from what I hear, that was the time. Yeah. That it was, was a, it was, there was a funny era. moment that, that I was around and I was lucky because at 25, 26, 27, I had been at the center of something amazing and I had reaped the rewards. They weren't financial. They were simply, um, I did it, you know, I did it. Yeah. And there was this funny period when the rest of the country caught up. It took right. a while. I'm going to give you an analogy that help, will help you understand what it was like. like. It's like cultural gentrification. Well, you know? it, it, but it's even easier than that. The Woodstock Festival was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay? And yeah. there was no film at 11. There was no videotape. There was nothing. And so the the news of Woodstock was released as news. There'd be some photographs, but you couldn't tell anything because it was... 400,000 people. And I saved some of the headlines like daily news, you know, hippies mired in a sea of mud. But right. obviously it was something greater than that. On Thursday, the following week, Life Magazine comes out. And Life Magazine was very much about pictures. And they had a seven, eight page photo spread of Woodstock. And that's where America saw what it actually looked like. And of course, the pictures were charming. As muddy yeah. as they were, they were charming, and they showed. The, and then that—that's what really changed people around. And then a, a year later, the movie comes out, and even though the movie showed all the good and the bad, it still made it very legendary and romantic. That's funny. Well, it's almost like the uh, the curve that Burning Man took. You know, if like yes, Burning Man was kind of long and drawn out, yes. but like no, that, Woodstock that, that, was a flash. I, 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 I fortunately never was drawn to that, but I did. I have been observing it, and the thing is that that. Um, that that the the nature of luxury as it as as it was quickly picked up by performers and everything wasn't there then there was there were no limousines there were no caterers there were no vanity people it was nothing like that so when you look at the Woodstock movie the great performances of that movie are great because they were great right you know they were great performances without a bit of artifice I mean Jimi Hendrix plays that amazing Star Spangled Banner on a Sunday morning you know at, at nine o'clock you know and right. most of the people are gone but it doesn't make any difference it's still the most amazing thing you've ever heard so were you were you part of that production were you doing visuals at that time joshua light show was was at woodstock yeah yeah, yeah that's no, definitely was, me. So you were what happened was we we went there remember these are all people we knew some of them i'd gone to college with these there was not we were not strangers in a strange land but this was way beyond anybody's expectations they had no idea that that the that the that that by 1969 remember this is two years after the summer of love by the 1969 the urge the need for young people to be together to be with their peers this this made it true before that there'd been stuff but it was all more controlled 
this was just free form and it just appealed to so many people, not unlike the way rap, um, you know, has, has really appealed and gotten into people 25 years ago. It, well, what you're, what you're describing is like a, like a grassroots move, yeah, cultural it's, move. It's the zeitgeist is, is the fancy word for it, is that the zeitgeist, people wanted to be together. They wanted to take off their clothes. They wanted to run around and, and be free. Yeah. Now, they couldn't do that. And keep in mind the history that one of the reasons they couldn't do it is because when you, if you were 18 in 1969, you were eligible for the draft. Right. And if you were drafted, they sent you to Vietnam. And you right. die. So yeah. put that sword over, you know, over us, over you, over everybody else. And it really changes things. So when people really wanted to have a band, and that's, that's, that can help me understand why people did. But it took two years between the legendary Summer of Love, which was just a, a bunch of, of kids panhandling, really. There was no great moments in the Summer of Love. And another interesting thing is... <clears throat> The same conceit, the same hubris that created Woodstock and, and then watched it all just fall apart, but become this amazing thing. Eight months later, the same people went to Altamont, California. and What was happening there? The Rolling Stones um, performed for an audience and they used the Hells Angels for security and right. was killed. Somebody who happened right, right, right. black was killed. And yeah. it was just a, a shit show. It was a shit show. And uh, do you think that 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 contributed to the fall of of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that because I'm now out of there, and I'm fine with being out of there. And I have my I, I, people still hold me in high regard I, I, because I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't do anything except what I did. Um, and I'm in television now, and I'm directing, and the In Concert series decides in 1974, they're going to try to put on a big one-day concert. It's called the California Jam. And they were very nervous about it because they had Altamont in their minds. And Altamont had been five years earlier, but nobody, everybody would say the same thing. People will riot. It didn't happen. I had four cameras. I shot for, for at 12 hours and made four 90-minute television shows with Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Earth, Wind & Fire, Emerson, Lake & Palmer. You know, we just did it because I wasn't frightened, um, and I was a, and I was in enough of a position of authority to be able to keep all of these nervous executives from freaking out. That's so funny, man. Yeah. It's like the it's like the flighty money, and then you've got like the flighty money trying to capitalize on a scene, and then the scene is a little chaotic, so, and it's like so. What else? You what else? Up in that do? scene, <laughs> really? well, you came up in that scene. You know, so fire, you, fire yeah, fest. Right. I mean. The uh, <laughs> and and the other the, the thing about it was that uh, that we made these really nice television shows with no money uh, and, and I I I did something that I've always done going all the way back to really the earliest shows I did is I always like to document yeah. and I made a deal um, when I was doing the in concerts with two very good photographers who hadn't made a reputation yet I'll get you in I'll give you all access take whatever pictures you want of, of you know, the bands, um, and give them, and, but take pictures of me and the technical setup and everything and give me yeah. those and give me the negatives. It was a great sure. deal. So I ended up with negatives of the California jam showing how it was done and everything. And they had all they still these have oh, yeah. they still got the pictures. There's, a, there's actually a, 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 a website called California jam in which there's a collector 
who posts all of that stuff and has has the negatives. I'm going to put some up on the the podcast. Notes. I will be uh, happy to send you anything you want, but you just yeah. and when it's over, just give me a list and I'll send you pictures. Uh, yeah. But the thing the thing about it uh, was that we were able to um, to just bring this amazing thing off, and I'm I'm very 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 proud of it. Yeah, that's very cool, man. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, um, kind of like like zoomed out a little bit. I I have, How, I have that effect on people. Yes. Well, I mean, how how much of an effect do you think the Vietnam War had on the intensity of that cultural wave that was happening? It, it seems like the more I read about the history, the more in, intrinsically linked that those two things are. Like the Vietnam, the intensity of the Vietnam era, right? That war fueled the intensity of that cultural movement. Yeah, I can I can address it to the best of my experience, which was that <clears throat> first of all, um, the you have to remember that the people, the young people that were culturally involved in Woodstock and just the whole hip scene, which could be anything from long from having long sideburns, you know, to being totally drugged out, were exactly yeah. the same age and the same backgrounds as the guys dying in Vietnam. Well, the guys right. dying in Vietnam were a little bit more brown and black, but they were the same age, same generation, and they there was this fork in the road. Do you go where where the greatest generation was? Do you go fight Hitler, you know, which is how it was written yeah. for these people, or do you right. do you get cut loose and and duck the draft and have free love and and all of those things? And well, create your own thing. Yeah, it's almost like thing. there was this fight. There was like a struggle, tug of so, war. So you have that. Between... Number one, number two, number two. Is um, is that the music of that particular golden period, the period of sixty eight, sixty nine, maybe seventy, yeah, was the soundtrack. That was our soundtrack. I mean, it, you 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 would hear that music played in Vietnam footage. You would hear it played by the soldiers. You would hear it played by everything. It was the anger of Kent State, and all of those things became the soundtrack for that generation. I'm not sure there's a soundtrack for this generation. And maybe I just, I, I have no way of hearing it. So I don't really know. Yeah. Possibly I, I, I don't, I don't either. Honestly. I mean, there's definitely the music industry is such a mess and it, it's, you know, after the fall of the music industry, I feel like it's really being reinvented. Like the, the economic model is being reinvented. Unfortunately, I think that artists are again, coming out on the short end of that stick, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, um, it's really interesting to to think about how that's evolved and how like the music industry has evolved and really that's gone hand in hand with um with the 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 evolutions in in popular culture. I agree with you there. I also feel that that this is about the most dreadful time that I can possibly imagine meaning the pandemic. But it is interesting. Can you imagine being can you imagine being in like high school right now? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. But but what will come of this might be good things, and I mean that in it, strictly artistically, because you 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 can't have these big mega concerts, and and there won't be any for at least another year. Don't don't expect anybody, if they even mount them, no one's going to go, or not enough people are going to go that they can guarantee these acts such incredible amounts of money. Remember, these packages were all. Put together, they, you know, there they were, they were no individual entrepreneurs anymore. This was strictly corporate, and I think we're going to have a period 
which is just like what I experienced in the 60s. In the 60s, there you couldn't get your music heard anywhere unless you went through one of the gatekeepers. Right. Uh, Dick Clark, he may not mean anything to you now, but Dick Clark had a TV show in the 50s called Bandstand, and here's this nice-looking guy with a tie and very well-mannered. And he put it, set himself up as a gatekeeper. You couldn't get on his show unless he liked you, you know. Or like the Beatles on his show or something. Yeah, just to be on his, on his thing. And, and he would produce shows. And, and his relevance disappeared after a while. The, the only way that you could see the Beatles was on the Ed Sullivan show, which was this silly. Ed old, Sullivan. Yes, right, the old variety right. show. And it was always this old man saying, and now here's something for the kiddies in our audience. And then it would be to see the Beatles. Right. So, right. Uh, so those those gatekeepers are gone, and I think that all of the record music gatekeepers, the ones that that made hideous profits and everything, they're dying off now. Well, there's no gatekeepers in the traditional sense yeah, like that anymore. Exactly. The internet because, has changed because if you make music, you can get it out there. How could you get it out there before you, you know, you you, you couldn't? There was no way. So you know what I think is going to happen, man. Like I'm looking at this this pandemic almost like um, it's a global trauma. And in the same way that, you know, there was this crazy resurgence of culture after the the the, the nineteen twelve pandemic, yes. I I hope, I really hope that this marks like a like a bookmark I, in, I, in I the agree. counterculture of the world. Look, and after, and after, after the, this after the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu, the movie business, radio. Yeah. You know, um everybody after, just, after World War Two, television. So, right. you know, and, and then the, the whole internet. So there's going to be more new stuff and you're, you know, I, I can observe it and enjoy it, but those people in high school, as long as they don't die, um, they, there's going to be some interesting stuff out there. Well, I just I think people are like so serious that can't get their music out. It may be people are going to explode, people, but it's out. Yeah. Like af after the pandemic is over, people actually can socialize again. I think we're going to see some really radical and new forms of, yes. uh, of cultural I, I feel that a lot of the a lot of the big scale things are just gonna they're gonna come back of course but they'll be you know disney productions there'll be companies that can absorb the back end um there's always yeah, gonna, the, 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 the joke when, when elvis died the joke was <clears throat> elvis is dead but you can go to this large arena and see elvis's jacket it's on tour and, uh, i think there's going to be some i think Yes, I think there will be some forms of kind of like corporate packaging of culture, but I think that just like oh, you know, like Burning Man is effectively dead. You know, th that's how I feel. And and Burning Man was a cultural phenomena that carried the United States and the world really through the '90s and and you know the mm -hmm. up until now. But it's it's become extremely packaged. You know, it, you it's time. Yeah, it's time for a paradigm shift, man. It's like this is the perfect bookmark. It's like what comes next? What are we gonna do after this? And it's really exciting to see and think about, like, okay, what what will be the crest of the wave? You know. So, but because well, we won't know because it will crest before we are able to perceive it. That's what happened with my generation when I was in my my mid twenties. You know, the, well, you might not know it's a wave, but you'll you can definitely be part of it. I think that what you were part of was the crest of a wave, right? Back in the you keep your mind open and you watch, you know, and nobody's sitting around waiting for you, Rob, to 
to to give the answers. You know, you have a specific thing that you do, and it's up to how you how the clients perceive you. I was sure. looking at go back to the California Jam for a minute. I was looking at some of these pictures, and I am wearing my Fillmore East Usher shirt, my green football jersey, because I knew without realizing it that if I put it on, and all these bands show up with these two hundred thousand people. And, if I spoke to them as the director of this entire thing, I'd have a certain authority because they would see something familiar. I didn't even realize I was doing it. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Man. But I think if you want my 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 opinion, my my big overview is that I do think that um, that that people are be, will begin to understand how important it is to have things made by hand which does not mean they're projected by hand. It does not mean that they're, they're one of performances. It just means that at a certain point, you, um, it, there has to be an artist involved. And right now we are at a funny place, or we were at a funny place, where the technology was so f- complicated and, and massive and expensive that ultimately the, tech, the art became like advertising art. It was too many people had their thumbs in it. And I think right. that now because because technology has become so universal and democratic, if I have an idea, if I have an idea for Instagram, I can go make it right now if if I can do it. And and I've been experimenting with that just to see what happens. And every time I make a little movie, and it can be just something off the television set, but it's the right moment at the right time. Right. Yeah, 150, yeah. 200 people, you know, will like it. And I don't have is that is that your medium home. right now? Are you is that are you like uh, are you releasing content on Instagram? Not really. I I um I don't re- I don't have to do that. It, there's uh, it, it's what I like. What I want to do is and what I try to do now is pass stuff along so that if somebody says we want to buy your light show, I I ask them enough questions to find out what they really want, and then right. I connect them with with somebody that I think can do it, and then it's up to that person to sell them. So we're. You're creating you're creating light I'm art beginning again. To have trouble hearing you because of um, of, of the PBS news hour. Oh, is that on my end or your end? I think that's 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 got to be that's on your it. end. Oh, it's it's on my end. It's uh, my wife is watching it. I will. Uh, uh, I'll lean a little closer to the No, it's it's, mind, cool. it's it's my end. I can I can filter it now that I know the source. Yeah, no, I was I was wondering though. Um, you're, you're making you're making art again. Like you've gone, you went from. No, I never stopped. I, I made, I, I committed my whole person to every television show that I did, crap or not. I gave it the same attention to detail um, that I gave the industrial shows where I'd have to wear a tie. Let me rephrase that. I didn't mean you're making art again. I meant you're making um, like personal, uh, you're making personal art again. Yeah. Like free form visual art. Yeah. Yeah, and what 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 form is that taking? Like, what's that like? Well, I you know it's 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 um, a lot of it involves re repackaging things during the pandemic. So, and I think I told you when we spoke on the phone that I was very proud of coming up with uh, some using some slightly older material, being able to make something look good on a very old LED screen. Yeah, do you remember? Because you're in that business, the old LED screens were that's they were different technology 10, 12 years right. ago. Yeah. And people were trying to make them act like state of the art. And they they didn't and they wouldn't. 
and I came up with some abstraction. It was appropriate. It just looked really good from a distance. Right. So are you doing like like permanent you you said you were doing permanent place making art. So like permanent art pieces in uh in in buildings. Well, I no, I've I've uh, uh, during my life as a TV director, I was also an installation artist and I made gallery th- shows and museum shows. I did a a big project with the artist Gary Panter in Detroit in installation. I I'm totally still involved with that to the best of my abilities. But That's I don't cool. count on that as a career thing because it's it's too complicated to go through the hoops that you have to go through and while i it, it, the the goal is to make money yeah it's a tough it's a tough industry yeah. man i'm i'm in the place making industry and it's it's yeah, very yeah, you, uh, you absolutely understand and, and yeah, if, you, if if say you do a whole lobby i think we talked about that that lobby in san francisco that i saw that that was totally immersive environment but Right, Salesforce. Yeah, Salesforce. Well, what do they put up there? <laughs> what they, that's what, a good question. Yeah, well, I mean, what, and, and that's that's where people are not really talking to artists yet. And if they do, the artists can't really create. They have to write it all down and make a proposal. And I've just managed to avoid that world. It hasn't made me rich. Right. Um, but it's it's. I think because I was trying to give you some clues as to what I think based on my age is that I I think that content will rule well content it, content does rule man like technology for technology's sake is not art well, it's the content that you create via technology that is the art well i right now i think it's extremely rare when i see any content that, to which i have knowledge which is mostly light show content it's very rare when i see something that's really good and when it is i tell people i compliment them i i, I write to the to the maker yeah, you know, yeah, and and I I and the, the basically the the I have my own lines of judgment, you know, and one of them is is were any human hands involved in this? Anybody can take ink and squirt it into a tank, you know, and then put it into a program and and have it split down the middle like a Rorschach test. That's not art. That's just process. You know, and, and yeah, I think there is art in there is art in computation. Like there is art in programming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But somewhere, in, and this again, this is me. I'm allowed to do this because I'm old. Somewhere, somebody has to put a pencil on a piece of paper. Just start somewhere. I mean, even Frank Geary, who's the master of technology, starts by crumpling up a piece of paper. And, and out of that comes ideas for a building. But that's me. You don't have to do that. That's just me. Well, I think you're right in that physical physical medium and 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 the real world right is oftentimes is mostly most of the time the real world is the best inspiration for art i agree the best art i've ever seen has with with few exceptions been based on some natural phenomena and i think that's uh you know that's because we're humans right we're physical yep. animals yes. and like that's I, I i talk about sometimes when i'm going off the deep end which i'm not going to do with you is I talk about being able to perceive a heartbeat. In other words, if somebody's making something, even a painting, I can perceive the the heartbeat. I can tell instinctively whether something was produced by a, a robot, you know, right. or whether uh, somebody at some point something human touched it. 
Um, yeah, it's funny because there's a lot of art going around, like AI art, and yeah, you know, and it's, it's, it's and it but I haven't been like blown away by it. I, look, I have a collection of of little things. I don't have a big collection, but one of them is mind reels. Some guys in San Francisco were going to sell eight millimeter film loops <laughs> that you right. could show in your house and trip on. And I don't collect a lot of it, but I save certain ones because they're just so beautifully ironic. Um, yeah, and and I. There's a Facebook group that's very informative that I enjoy, which is the Psychedelic Light Show Preservation Society. Which Whoa, is the, wait, what is it? Yes, Psychedelic, Psychedelic Light, Show Light Show Preservation, Preservation Society. So write Facebook that down group. right now. But, <laughs> but it, it's the, it, it's well administered in that it's me and several other guys, some of whom I just only know as Facebook friends. And we don't let people in unless they can demonstrate by simply answering questions, whether they're serious or whether they just want to like, be around the Grateful Dead, you know. Oh, and, yeah. and you filter out all of those people, you get some very interesting, dedicated artists, and those are the ones I'm encouraging. Right, right, right. So this really it is an artist group. It's a group for artists. Yeah, it is, and and I've also uh, I, I try to be generous with compliments, but not over complimentary. And I'm also ask me if they say how can I do this or what what do you think? I'll tell them. Just like an art right. teacher would give a crit, I'll say it's great, but. You know, yeah. do it. Think about slowing it down. That's funny, man. That's like literally the only reason I'm on Facebook still is the uh, the the art the groups the the artist groups that I'm part of. Yeah. And there's yeah. there's a guy in our group who who makes who makes glass spheres with opals in them. That's cool. But his head is as we used to say, his head's in the right place. So he, sure. he looks at everything. He takes it in and whether it affects his glass spheres that he sells for a lot of money, you know, in boutiques. I don't know, but he, he asks good questions and he pays attention. That's cool. I mean, he considers that psychedelic art. That, that's if awesome. he does, that's, I'm not going to discourage him because what is psychedelic? Oh, he's in the group, mind, right? mind expanding, you know. <laughs> I think at some point back in the past, we I tried to connect you with Beck Stupek. Do you remember? Oh my God, yeah. She's like on the road now. She's out here and she's she was working for uh what the fuck was it instagram i think it was instagram but uh no it and wasn't pandora instagram. there's a there's a cheap pandora yeah. yeah that's who she was yeah no for. that's old that's old news um yeah. the, the current news is that is that she's she's living in senegal she's married to uh, she got divorced from her first husband she's married to a, a drummer named ada and she and the music they make is great and senegal turns out to to be the new Berlin, and this the new what? The new Berlin, which you're too oh, interesting. But there was a time when Berlin was the place everybody wanted to be. Hey, that came back around, man. The Berlin was just the place where everybody wanted okay. to be. It's Senegal, Senegal. It's it's okay. It's, it's 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 a better African place. It's it's not chaos there, and and they support the arts and and she. I know she committed because Beck never had tattoos or anything. When I saw her last, she had a full, beautiful set of tattoos on both arms. So but, but cool. she was the reason that we became friends. And she was one of my best collaborators is because when I met her at, at a dot com in 2000, in 1999, she was trying to do what I did. Yeah. She was mixing with her V4 and playing back from from mini DV tapes. And I that's how I that's how I know her is through the VJ scene. And, the VJ and, scene back and nothing in stopped. Or, I mean, she yeah. just she just finds different mediums, but she's always out there, and I just want something to stick. But yeah. I worked with her for years after that. She was my main collaborator 
with the Joshua Light Show. Yeah, that's we met. We met back in. Uh, it must have been. It was through Andrew Borg, and it was. Um, What's that space called? Yeah, the psych- that crazy psychedelic place. Yeah, what the hell was that called? Fuck. Ah, whatever. It was. It was real <laughs> jive ass. I mean, it was basically a an event space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was cool uh, though guys is a psychedelic church yeah it was the psychedelic church and it was it was that visionary artist what is his name Why you know, am I, I sp- if he were really a visionary artist i would i'd remember the name yeah he's he, okay. alex gray alex and alex, allison gray and, and his wife yeah they right yeah and, that and was, a, was that was a cool was a woman, cultural geneva i think was her name geneva and, that was my partner back right. then. And and I tried to work with her and we did the best we could. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was the fir- but it was the first time that I stuck a camera on top of an overhead projector. Really? First time that I yeah, because nobody did anything like that. And it was- yeah, I remember that, man. I still have the uh the DV cassettes. I have the raw footage from that experience. Well, that's so crazy. Yeah, they're making a film about me now. I will, uh, I'll, I'll put the, the director in charge. I'll, I'll put her in touch with you when, if we get to that, because it was a transition for me, only because yeah. I saw that it could be done. Right. We all thought about it, and uh, you know, within a year we were doing it. And uh, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, that's what it was called. Right. Allison he, he and moved, Alex. He's somewhere else. Like. Yeah, he went up to upstate New York, and I don't know what he's doing, but. Um, that was a cultural moment, yeah. man. That that place was very much like a like an anchor uh, for the the psychedelic scene in New York. That I didn't, I didn't realize. Up. I didn't realize that, but that makes a lot of sense because I remember at that event that we, that I worked on with Geneva, there was a lot of young people wandering around trying to get in touch with their seventh bardo or something. It was very <laughs> very curious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, that's such a funny it was a long cool time memory. Ago. It was a long time ago, but I'm glad that we're having this conversation, just bringing it back in much clearer focus. You know, I remember that night. It's very cool. Well, if you get into a situation where um, where you're doing the, the kind of work that I think you're doing, and I, I did look at your website when we first got in touch, that I'd be happy to just, there's no charge, just to tell you visually what I think is interesting. There are people who do really man. good work. I would, I would really love that, especially in the content tip, you know, it's like we create these grand canvases and then, you know, the content is, uh, sometimes it's secondary and that's, that's a shame because really it should be about the content and the vision is a vision of how content fits in a space. And and the review process needs to be considered. It's not going to go away, but you really can't have to explain the content. The artist shouldn't have to explain the content to a group of people sitting around a table because how does how do you capture that? The only way you can capture it is to do it. And right, of course. And you, and you can't even make a model anymore. Nobody makes models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who I would love to get in touch with though is Beck. I would love to do I would love to have a conversation with her and to talk. Um especially about Senegal, man. That's that's news to me that Senegal is such a cool place. Yep. And, and they, they, there's a, a some very interesting art being made there by people. And it, it's not all black African art. It's from everywhere. It's, sure. it's just um, a, a Beck Stupak at Honey Gun Labs. I'll, yes, if you ask me in the email, I'll, I'll give you whatever. She's still, she's still under that not, not moniker, uh, Honey Gun? Um, you know, I, I think she keeps the email. Yeah, but I, 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 we, we communicate back and forth, and she sends me pictures, and it looks like heaven, you know. And and 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, my biggest concern with, with Beck has always been that she goes from one thing to another and she commits really a, a terrific talent. Um, but she gets drawn to the vanities. And I'm not sure you know what I mean by that, but she gets drawn to fashion and makeup companies and things. And I just think that world is, is anti-art. It's fine. You know, she really needs you know, to make art. I think that, I think that the end result, the commercial application of the vanities can be very, um, very uh, disingenuous. Ooh. But I think there is definitely an art form to makeup and decorating people. I think that is definitely like a legitimate art form that it's cool to see people explore with a sense of genuineness. Does that make sense? I have no, I have no uh, problem with that. I, it does remind me of, of what I started to say before. I just should get it out was we, I, I sort of grew up and was in my later twenties at the, at the cusp between the sixties and the seventies. And yeah. there was a period then when fashion was out of control. And when I say out of control is they didn't have a clue. They, right. they, they were Warhol. They didn't understand that we right. wanted something. And so there's these amazing hideous fashions from right 70, 71, where, where, where the men's hair was awful with the awful sideburns. It's, it's a look, you know, yeah. There's a period of time when, when clothing, especially for men, just went to hell. And, and of course, there are people that love that and collect it and honor it and everything. But it was, I, I didn't get caught up in that. But it, but it was just, I'm very, I look at, at, at my wedding photos from 1977 and, and I look fine. <laughs> I do not look like a fashion victim. Well, you know, man, I think the world has to get that out of its system. You know, it's like if you look at the like the ebbs and flows of like fashion culture, it's like there's a lot of bad decisions made in a lot of different occasions. <laughs> and I think that's just a part of, uh, yeah, you know, it's, I, I it's agree with you about the art of fashion, um, jewelry, makeup. I, I agree with you. I think it's an art. It's not my art. No, no, but it's not my art either. Art. <laughs> and I don't like it when it overwhelms the end result if it's all about making someone up who then has to stand there alone and present yeah it gets in the way as a director it would get in the way but you, you handle it the best you can right and you also yeah. end up with a lot of tropes i mean just how much how many more sh shots can you see of the, the, a woman with her hair being blown i mean it's just right just enough well i mean that's that's the whole like art gets stale and then it's like it's up to people people like beck to shake it up. Yeah, I agree. And that's like, all right, we're going to do glad, some really radical she went, shit. She went far away and she didn't, you know, she was in Oakland, you know, and, and uh, Berkeley. And it just was not for her. Yeah, but we're all far away now. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're all a Zoom call away. And no, you know, like I can't see my friends down the street anymore that I can see you in real life, you know. Um. We've actually done a bunch of traveling recently. I I, I just got back from uh, from an interesting stint. Excuse me, where uh, I actually flew. I flew up to Hawaii. I landed, quarantined for five days, got my test, waited for the results, joined a pod, hung out with that pod for about two weeks, flew to the East Coast, rinsed and repeated, got an Airbnb, quarantined, tested, results, joined a pod. And I went to Mexico and did the same thing. Yeah, it was interesting. It was a, it was a really interesting experience traveling during this 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 pandemic, and then trying to figure out like a way to not only keep, yeah, to keep the 
to keep myself safe, to keep my partner safe, and to to not be a vector. Do you know what I mean? Don't to not contribute to a problem. I, I think and, maybe that'll be the new the new thing. Will just be travel. But my generation will be afraid to go out of the house. Travel will become this pod thing. I like the pod part. It's, it's, I do it slows I everything down. I wouldn't mind a pod right now. I have one with my wife, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, it's what's kept me sane. I live in a in a a small community, and uh, I was about to leave before the pandemic struck, mm -hmm. and then I came back here, and I was just like, "Oh my god, I'm so grateful that I don't live by myself in a one bedroom studio." I would, you know, it's a yeah. uh, like complete isolation, man. We're, we are not meant for that. That is not, and also it, it wasn't like laid out. It, it it just kept evolving. I've been home for eleven months. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It really is. Is that me? Is that fire? It's me. No, I'm just hearing it come through. I'm sorry. I'm just hearing it come. I, this microphone is too good. Wow. Well, yeah. Maybe it's doing a feedback or something. That's right. Um. Listen, man. I think that. We should probably call it a wrap. Mm -hmm. It's been about an hour. I enjoy talking to you, and I'm easy to reach, as you can see. And I'm, I look okay. I'm looking at myself. Here. I look fine. Ah, this has been a great podcast, man. I think a lot of people are going to think. I, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in, in what you have to say. You know, especially this audience. We're very focused on like new media, visual arts, and what we just talked about is kind of like it's the roots of that. It's, it's, beginning it's all about the future. The the means of production are is no longer a problem. Yeah. Right. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm gonna follow up and we'll uh I'll of course I'll run this by you before we post it. I don't edit for content, I just edit for sound quality. And then uh yeah, I want a bunch of those pictures and some some connections to like cool cool people we talked about. And okay. I'll send you yeah. I just send me an email and I'll it's easy. I'll just answer the questions right on your email and you'll have it. All right, brother. Okay. Take care.